Hi, dance friends. I'm Margaret Fuhrer, content director for the Dance Edit newsletter and podcast. And welcome to this special episode in partnership with the Kennedy Center. We are thrilled to be teaming up with the Kennedy Center for a series of episodes featuring artists from different companies or different generations or different areas of the dance world in conversation with each other. Our first pairing is Janet Elber, who has been artistic director of the Martha Graham Dance Company since 2005, and Michael Novak, artistic director of the Paul Taylor Dance Company since 2018. Both of these iconic modern dance institutions have had deep relationships with the Kennedy Center for decades. As their leaders, Elber and Novak face two big challenges simultaneously, preserving and maintaining these bodies of historically significant dance works, and then finding a way to bring their companies forward into the future. Their approaches to those challenges have run on both parallel and crisscrossing tracks, much like the lives of Graham and Taylor themselves. And they both have really illuminating things to say about the field of modern dance today more broadly, too. So here are Janet and Michael. Hi, Janet. Hi, Michael. It is such a pleasure to be here with you both today. Thanks for coming on. Looking forward to it. I'm excited. Thank you. Michael, you and I should, you know, take our act on the road one of these days, right? I know. (laughs) (laughs) Presenters everywhere tuning in. (laughs) Actually, yeah. How often are the two of you in communication with each other? It sounds like a lot. Well, we've 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 been in at least one other um, discussion of the future of modern dance and how we're placed in it and that sort of thing. I think we're always orbiting and intersecting and seeing each other at events, and you know, it's right. ships in the night sometimes, <laughs> but also, yeah. So a, a continuation of an ongoing conversation. That's always. great. All right, so the topic today is how you are leading these two historic companies, Martha Graham Dance Company and Paul Taylor Dance Company, into the future. Um, so let's let's start with a big question that's really the question, which is how do the two of you think about the balance between preservation and innovation? Oh, I'll start. It's the center of everything we do. I mean, it's 100% and 100%. The the preservation and the authenticity of our legacy is paramount. And we spend a lot of time uh, making sure that it's it's still um, singing and um, connecting and um, uh, speaking in its uh, authentic voice. You know, we, we have um, we're lucky enough to have films of many generations of the Martha Graham Dance Company dancing these classic works and and variations that Martha herself directed because she lived so long so that when we remount a work, we have a plenty of material to, to understand what Martha considered to be important, the sort of emotional message of a work, while dancers changed, audiences changed, um, and uh, We've, we sometimes look back on, on our archives and what is back there. And, and we've actually reinstated some of what Martha did in the early years. Um, for example, in the 80s, she had a tendency to sort of freshen her works with new costumes. Halston did a variety of new costumes for us. And now when we look at them, well, they're from the 80s. <laughs> and we really prefer <laughs> sort of mid-century modern choices she made in the 40s and 50s when she was creating the dances, when Noguchi was creating the sets that created this 
really um, pure world, that modernist world that she was after. So that's one half of it. And the other half of it is innovation. And then I'll let Michael take it over because Martha was also all about innovation. And we are totally dedicated to using that authentic legacy to uh, spring into the future, uh, bouncing off of it, mining it for ways to be creative and to um, reach today's audiences in new ways. I agree 100%. Um, my, my goal as artistic director is to always create a transformative theatrical experience for audiences. And that requires both preservation and innovation. And I don't see them as opposites. I actually see them as fairly interconnected um, because as Janet just said, like there's innovation even within preservation. Um, there is going back into the vault. Um, we actually remounted a bunch of early Paul Taylor works um, in his collaborations with Robert Rauschenberg from the 1950s and 1960s. And even in going through archives, reconstructing works, re, um, in some cases, having, having to reimagine costuming. Um, there's a great deal of innovation, collaboration that's happening. And these works, even if you kind of remove the date they were made, you kind of, if you're able to like think beyond that, some of these works are still innovative and could still be considered avant-garde or pushing boundaries or timeless, whatever that phrase is that you want to use. Um, so I think innovation is very applicable in terms of the preservation of pre-existing work. But I also think preservation is actually essential in the creation of new work. And what I mean by that is how you're recording it, how you're documenting it. Um, the intention of choreographers when they create work, I am, at least in our world, is essential. It's not just steps and counts. There's usually a feeling, an emotion, uh, an inspiration, a current of electricity. And that's gold for the preservation of that innovation going forward. So I see them as constantly influencing each other. Um, and dialoguing in a way. And as director, the goal is to really kind of steer that conversation. Sometimes you get out of the way and it's like a loaf of sourdough and you just kind of like let it, you know, or the sourdough starter, you just kind of let it do its thing, you know, and then you, you help it when it needs help. And then sometimes your hands off, but legacy is always evolving. It's always innovating. And Martha and Paul were massive innovators, you know, and their collaborators. Um, yeah. And not just even in dance. I mean, visual art, music, reimagining the proscenium stage, reimagining what the human form can do. They were constantly innovating. So keeping that spirit alive is essential. Yeah, I, and Michael, I think you'll agree with me. I mean, those two giant creative artists were far less concerned about preservation. They were totally, I mean, Martha was all That's about true. Next, creation. next, next. Yeah, yeah. Martha in, embraced change. She was always trying to figure out what was different about her, her audiences day to day and um, what she could put on the stage that would astonish them. So, you know, people may have a tendency to think of these august, now the pioneers of modern dance as being very sort of um, held frozen in place, but far from it. They were 
constantly moving into the future. In fact, you couldn't keep up with them. Yeah. When that that connection between the present and the past is less aligned and more of a Mobius strip, mm-hmm. as you've been articulating, what challenges does that create and what opportunities does that open up? You've already talk, started talking about this, but can you talk more about that? I think the challenges are recognizing that it's a living thing, that art is a living thing. And it's always new because you have new bodies executing it. You have new personalities in the room. There's there's an element of chemistry that is different with every generation. And the challenge and the excitement is nurturing that and figuring out that chemistry and honing in on it so that when it's, you know, a dancer in the role in a certain moment, whether it's a new work or an old work, that like there's a spark that happens. So the challenge is figuring out what's that, what's that chemical reaction that we're looking for. Um, then the opportunity is magic when you hit it and audiences see it and feel it. So we had a big challenge to overcome our reputation. Uh, when I mm. took over the company, uh, there, there were Martha Graham had been kind of frozen in a certain kind of expectation uh, that the Graham Company only danced works by Martha Graham, and that um, uh, you revered, uh, you know, everything she did, everything, you know, there's, there's, that's the reputation. That's not necessarily what was happening um, in the company. So for us to develop um, new systems of reaching our audiences. Uh, there was there was resistance, you know. We what we were doing was going from this sort of um, I call it a goddess centric company, where mm. everyone came to see what the goddess up on the mountain was doing. We had to turn around and make it completely opposite, a 180. We had to come down off the mountain and figure out how we were going to reach out to today's audiences, and we began to um, do things uh, early on, such as our spoken introductions. We have a spoken introduction to all of our performances now to bring context that, you know, to allow audiences into these works and um, not, you know, it's not a secret club. You don't need a handshake to understand modern dance or Martha Graham. Um, And certainly our commissioning of new work was part of that contextual curation, frankly, of our legacy so that we would, bring in artists to create new works that would um, create works that reflected on the same themes as Martha's dances or reacted to them in some way. I think our Lamentation Variations, um, which was sort of our first foray into new work, it was dipping our toe in um, by inviting three contemporary choreographers to create short works inspired by a film of Martha dancing her iconic solo lamentation. Uh, it was supposed to be a one night only event. We, we happened to have an opening night on the anniversary of 9-11. Yeah, and we were at the Joyce and on the sixth anniversary of 9-11 and felt that we had to commemorate the date. New York, you know, it's, it's um, especially six years after the event, it was a topic that you, you just couldn't go out and have a gala celebration on that day. So at any rate, we asked Azure Barton and Richard Move and Larry Kegwin if they would create these short, dan- short dances. We didn't have much time. We didn't have much money. We said, we'll give you all exactly the same thing, 10 hours of rehearsal. 
keep your dance under four minutes because that's what lamentation is. Um, simple dancewear costumes, simple lighting, no props, no sets. You can use any number of dancers in the company. And um, that night we showed the film of Martha followed by these three gems of contemporary choreography that were totally organically tied to our legacy. And it was so moving and beautiful that we, of course, we said, well, forget the one night only thing. We're, we're taking these on the road. <laughs> <laughs> and we began commissioning new ones. We, you know, Lar Lubovich, Yvonne Rayner, Doug Brown, Michelle Dorrance, Sonia Taya, Liz Gehring. I mean, we have 15 lamentation variations now. I'm, I'm sorry, I've gone off on this tangent, but um, it's just, the the fertile these these legacies are so fertile if you if you're not limited by what other people think you should be um certainly martha never allowed herself to be uh, pigeonholed neither did paul right <laughs> when we're talking about commissioning new work as part of this this way of building the future while connecting to the past how do you select the choreographers that you would like to help create that that vision? You know, it's interesting. I So when Paul Taylor started commissioning uh, other choreographers to come in, it was in 2014, it was on our 60th anniversary. And Paul wanted to build, um, as part of like a larger transition plan for the company, he had a plan um, and he called it Paul Taylor American Modern Dance. And it was this idea that our Lincoln Center season would be a nexus for um, the icons of the past and the innovators of the future. And I was in the company at the time. And I think that idea for Paul came from Martha. It came from Merce. Um, it came from learning about Tudor and Balanchine and like, what, what, how do we keep the art going forward? Um, or in Merce's case, how do we disband the company and how does the trust that is empowered to take the work, how does that go forward? So I think Paul was kind of listening to all of his contemporaries. Um, and I was never privy to the process of how these outside choreographers were brought in. Um, Larry Kegwin and Doug Elkins, Lila York, Kyle Abraham, Margie Gillis, uh, Pantanowitz, an incredible roster of people. As artistic director and being part of that process was helpful. And I'll tell you why, um, is that often a lot of the choreographers after their first work with a Taylor company would say something to the extent of knowing what I know now, I would do something different next. And it made me realize that commissioning isn't just finding a choreographer whose work you like. It, you're really, you're commissioning a, a person. You're commissioning a relationship. Um, and these are, so I started looking at my commissioning project you would say is like I'm building relationships the product is art but I'm really who are people that I can bring into the fold who I want to get to know whose work and maturation I'm excited about um someone who I may want to commission three four five six times over the next 10 15 20 years um for me it was not so much like a one and done um, it was like, no, like, who am I really, who's interesting to me? So when I look at choreographers, I usually, um, one of the things that catches my eye is how they move large groups across the stage. Um, we have 16 dancers who are known for running. 
<laughs> very dramatically. Um, so I looked for how the choreographer guides a mass across the stage. That's very important to me. Um, emotional range, depth is important to me. That's also a hallmark of the Paul Taylor repertory and style is that things, you have the light and the dark and everything in between. Um, but I also look for choreographers who remind me of a facet of a work by Paul. And I say that because I think the new work can inform how dancers do the Taylor work. I think it's a dialogue. And I think if I commission intelligently, the new work will only make them better at Taylor and Taylor will make them better at the new work. And so I'm also looking for where do they fit within Taylor's spectrum? And then how do I program and curate other dances in the Taylor canon to complement that? Um, so it's much more than just, oh, I like their dance, that's good. It's a much larger complicated <laughs> matrix for me. Um, yeah, there are too many uh, talented people out there to just say, oh, I like their work or I like their work. And then the, the choice is endless. Um, our, our system was a little, more be, again because we felt we were sort of fighting this reputation that everything was very uh, frozen in place for the Graham Company. Um, our our way of, of looking for uh, artists to work with sort of grew out of this idea of bringing more context to what Graham is doing and opening the doors in many different directions, mm -hmm. many different points of access for audiences to come and understand our work. And um, so along with that, we began to use um, what we call our season themes. We have an overarching idea for each one of our seasons. Um, we've been doing this for over 10 years now. For example, myth and transformation was a theme that allowed us to, of course, bring forth all of Martha's Greek works and works that were inspired biblically or by um, other stories. Um, and, uh, another theme was shape and design, where we leaned into all of her modernist work. Um, Sacred Profane, where we went with the more religious works and her ritualistic works. So there were themes that were sort of born out of these different um, approaches by Martha Graham. Many of these years had the same Graham works on them. They fit under different themes, of course. But it also steered us toward who we would um, commission to do a new work under that heading. And I looked for artists um, who were as different from Martha Graham as possible, really, I have to say. I have, right. I have masterpieces by Martha Graham. I don't want something that's Graham-esque that that choreographer would suffer in comparison. I was really looking for something um, that would um, stand in contrast to Martha's work, but would have a conversation with Martha's work through the thematic material. So we hired Andanas Poniadakis, the Greek choreographer during our myth and transformation season. During Sacred and Profane, it was Siddhi Larbi Sharkawi. Um, we've, we're working now in our theme, human slash nature, talking about you know, the rev Martha's reverence for the human body, but also our relationship to the planet and nature. And um, we did a work actually by eight different choreographers, eight vignettes inspired by nature, sun, moon, stars, uh, wind, water, 
um, it, it was a format actually of a dance Martha created in 1952. And Paul Taylor saw it and said, as he was a student in Juilliard, said it was the reason he became a choreographer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the work disappeared. Um, so we only had the structure of it. And we invited um, Sonia Taya to oversee this group of very diverse voices, uh, dance voices that came together in this work. Um, so again, the idea of having a structure, this contextual um, curation that might seem limiting is actually very freeing and um, allows the artists that come to work with us to be wildly inventive in their, in their own voice. I mean, you know, I don't want them yeah. to try to conform to um, the Martha Graham voice or style or anything. I want them to be um, their own distinctive and wonderful creative self. Um, and that's worked very well for us. This idea of contextual curation actually seems related to the way that, that both Graham and Taylor chose dancers as well. They're, they're both known for finding and, and cultivating these really singular performers. So I'm wondering now, when selecting dancers for your companies, what, what do you look for? Are you looking for qualities that you know that Graham or that Taylor sought out? Do you have your own criteria? Is it some combination of both? I would say knowledge of the style is helpful. Um, so is technique. Um, I don't want to <laughs> downplay the significance of those. But I'll say having, having done a number of auditions at this point that when I watch an audition, I look for tells about how a person is as a person, um, especially when they mess up. Do they laugh? Do they commit to the mistake and they do it so perfectly wrong that everyone else looks wrong even though they're doing it right? Do they stomp? off because they got frustrated? Um, do they laugh and check in with everyone else and make it, you know, there are these little moments that reveal themselves in auditions that I can teach you how to do a scoop and a contraction and jump. I can work with you on that. Hiring a good person, like a genuine, like a, like a team player, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking at who's that person gonna be when we're at 10,000 feet, and we're jet lagged on a rake stage and half the company has the Montezumas, you know, as like, who's that person who's going to be like, we got this guys, we're going to do it. We're going to go, let's go. You know, like it's that, that is revealed so apparently it's so easy to see actually. And I want to hear Janice talk about like, like how she sees that too. Um, We give them combinations of stuff that's very classical and stuff that's more, grotesque and modern. Um, We have them walk across the floor one by one as Paul Taylor did still. Um, And that's where you see the person away from the artifice of a technique and a style. You see just that lone individual and who they are and it reveals a lot. I I agree, Michael. I mean, that's it's something probably dancers don't think about when they come to an audition and, and we're auditioning this weekend. So it's something I'm thinking about oh, is yeah. the importance of, of their personal interaction with the, with the other dancers, with the other artists in the room and, and with the guest artists in the room and on the road and with 
our production crew and with the production crew at every theater we walk into and the presenter of every theater we walk into and their VIPs waiting at the reception in the, in the green room. And, you know, it's, it's incredibly important to our work that we find artists who are, are mature and wonderful human beings. <laughs> I think I have to say, um, I'm lucky enough to have a company full of them right now. We've got a company yeah. that has been oh with gosh, us yeah. almost all of them for six, seven seasons at least now. So yeah. they're a wonderful community. Um, that aside, what we're looking for an audition, you touched on it when you mentioned technique, we're, but we're also looking, and I, I bet this is true of you, Michael, of expression within form um, we we have like that. the the, yeah. the gram. Martha didn't want you to get out on stage and just emote. Your body was supposed to real reveal the expression through the movement. Yeah. Um, she also expected you to be an individual on stage, so you have to let yourself come out through that form. Uh, even if you're in a gram chorus, you are supposed to be presenting yourself and expressing yourself as who you, you uniquely are. Um, so that's one of the things we look for in an audition. If someone can really bring themselves through the movements that we're asking them to le learn on the spot. So a combination of things. And I think dancers also don't realize when they come into audition, how much is out of their hands, you know, we might need a tall woman and everybody in the room is, Five two, we might need a follower for Appalachian Spring, and the tall ladies are kind of automatically disqualified. Of course, we love to see them. We want to see them dance. We want to get to know them. But there are certain things. So I always hope that dancers will come into an audition just there to yeah. enjoy it as if it, as if it were a workshop, or you know, to to really relax and and have a good time because that's when they'll show us their best selves. I think. And you never know as an artist. I mean, I, had, I can speak to personal experiences of not getting a job and then two months later, I get a phone call, you know. Right. Um, that, happened, that happened quite a bit. And it makes me think that's a good thing that, thank you so much, I had a great day. Hope to hear from you soon. And then you end up hearing from them soon. <laughs> you know, like you just, you just, the world is so small. So you don't know. I mean, We've had emails back and forth about artists, Janet, about yeah. like, listen, I have someone in mind. I am not in a position right now. Please, this consider if you know someone, if you know a company who's looking like we're trying to help artists That's do what right. it is they're here to do. We really yeah. are. There's this underground network um, that I had an audition a couple of months ago. I sent out emails about like, who are, what type are you looking for? Because I might have someone for you. You know, we want them to succeed. <laughs> so. Paul had a made up word that he used uh, called zunch, Z-U-N-C-H. And zunch was a word that he, he would describe as this, um, he'd say, let's be ourselves, but more so. And it was kind of this call to action that when you're dancing, hopefully you are not just you, that you are this expanded version that's more alive, more powerful, more sensitive. Everything is at the nth degree. And nervousness can get in the way of that, of living on the edge like that and feeling things so deeply. So if there is a way that, 
artists listening in, like as much as you can live what it is your dance, express what you're feeling through, you know, Graham's work, through Taylor's work, even if you, even if it's new, still living and embodying it is so beautiful and exciting to watch. And it's so, it, it's rich and it allows us to, it makes our jobs harder, but it helps the field in the long run. I'm going to go embroider two pillows, one expression within form, and the other one zunch. I'll put them on either ends of my couch. But but you both danced for the creators of your companies, the companies you let you now lead. Yeah. So how do those experiences factor now into your leadership? Do you do you hear the voices of Graham or Taylor in your ear when you're making decisions? You know, uh, she's just she's in my she's in my body. I don't hear her in my ear. I mean, I learned yeah. so many life lessons from having her direct me in roles, for, from having her as the third eye to, to help me um, understand what my unique powers were and to use them to the fullest, to 100%, my own power. You know, I danced roles that uh, were hers. But, you know, I was six inches taller than she was. And, and I had a much more lyrical style. I mean, I was quite a different dancer. Of, of course, everyone's a different dancer from Martha Graham. But um, I would perform the movement she created for herself in a different way, just in terms of my physicality. And she, she expected that. She, she wouldn't have crossed her mind to ask me to perform a role the way that she performed it. Um, but she would um, uh, encourage me to dig into myself and understand what of myself I could bring to all of these characters. Um, and those were life lessons. I mean, when someone teaches you to be your most powerful self, um, that's, that's not just something that stays on the stage. Um, the other, the other thing was her courage. I mean, she was in a constant state of free fall, this idea that she was constantly stepping into the future, which means stepping into the unknown. You don't know if there's anything you're going to step onto, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and, and that kind of watching her embrace change and understanding that change is with us. You know, you, you can try to hide, but change is what's happening. Um, so embracing it, seeking it uh, is an exhilarating ride. Uh, I don't have the same bravery and courage as, as Martha Graham, but she certainly opened, opened that door for me to uh, allow me to say yes, yes to, to everything. Yes, we're going to. Uh, take lamentation and let other choreographers create new works to it. We're gonna we're gonna go to Anne Bogart and say use these notes from Martha Graham and create a new work for us. Um, we're gonna create a digital community. We're, we're we're gonna have Instagram. We're gonna I mean all of this new stuff that Martha was not aware of. She would have loved. You know, people say, really, Martha Graham on Instagram? I say, yes. I think I told oh, she would have. or somebody. <laughs> yeah. her, her handle is at Pelvic Truth. I love that, at Pelvic Truth. At yeah. Pelvic Truth. That's another pillow. That's, <laughs> I was going to say. We got a lot of pillows by the end of this conversation. Um, I think, you know, hearing, hearing you talk about Martha 
Janet and her kind of that sense of free fall. And I think of Paul when I knew him towards the end of his career. And I think Paul had, Paul was in a observing phase or stage, I think, um, coming to the end of his life, you know, the end of his oeuvre. And I, having done so much innovation and so much risk-taking and um, pushing his own, you know, his own art form forward. Um, my takeaway in working with Paul was the power of the subtle and the simple um, and knowing when to employ it. Um, and in terms of sometimes just touching someone on their hand and looking them in the eye could be more impactful than a bunch of jumps in a row. Um, and how he would demonstrate how to do that was hypnotic. Um, it's not to say he didn't get up and demonstrate how to do a contraction, because he did do that once. So he, he was watching class one day and uh, he was smoking a cigarette and he did not like how we were contracting. And, he got up and he said, you have to do it like this. And he, it was his whole rib cage inverted. And like, you saw this, like, oh my, it must've been amazing. You know, when he was, you know, as tall as he was when he was younger. Um, so he still had that physicality of when something needed to have that zunch, that like, ah, like he could do it, but then he would give you something so delicate. Um, so that I took away from me, um, or took away for me, um, I also think Paul, Paul was able to kind of chuckle things off. You know, that didn't work. You know, he would try something in the studio and there was a sense of trying to do the impossible, don't get me wrong. But when it wouldn't happen, he'd be like, well, we'll try something else, you know? And that's been very helpful in the pandemic as we've been innovating and launching our digital programming, trying new ways to engage with our archives, um, new programming models that I'm playing with when we go on the road, you know, and like learning from what doesn't work. We're like, well, we're going to do that better again, you know, and not obsessing about it wasn't perfect, you know, um, and recognizing that it's a process, it's a journey. I mean, I think that's one of the things, Janet, I'm interested to hear your thought on this, that as a dancer turned director is that as a dancer, you're rehearsing daily, your product is fine-tuned daily. Um, your coaching happens daily. As a director, your programming is over years. You learn from the, the programs that you create and curate start to teach you and your audiences teach you. And the rate is slower. The feedback is a different feedback loop. Um, so having patience, the way Paul had patience is something that I try to embrace, especially through the past two years we've been through. Um, yeah, yeah, they, you're right. The, the um, programming, of course, it's a completely different art form, if you will. <laughs> um, and I find you do, there, there are certain logistics that means you have to plan in advance, you know, what dances you're going to take on the road next year, um, what presenters want, what, you know, you, you costumes have to get ready. You have to commission artists 18 months, two years in advance, that sort of thing. And um, I find one of the challenges with that is we want our programs to resonate 
with the times, if you will, with the audience that is coming into the theater. And especially in the last two or three years, the social political atmosphere has been so charged and so changeable with the pandemic, uh, with the Me Too movement, with yep. George Floyd's murder. The, the um, audiences are, are, when they have been allowed back in the theater or when they were watching us digitally, were coming with a completely, um, uh, I won't say completely different mindset, with, but with a, a supercharge um, that we could not have anticipated when we planned our programming. Yeah. Uh, so uh, being able to respond uh, to what's happening in the world and audiences needs, not just their expectations, but their needs. I mean, I feel like we need a lot of joy right now. We need a lot, a lot of love and a lot of community. And at the same time, uh, dances that uh, move discussions and conversations forward. Yep. Um, and so staying on top of that, I, actually is kind of not only a day-to-day, -day, but hour-to-hour, <laughs> -hour, minute-to-minute, 3 a.m. kind of um, creative curation conversation that you're, you're constantly reacting to. Actually, speaking of, of resonating with the times and also coming back to the idea from before about innovation within preservation, have you ever faced questions about something problematic in a, in a classic work by one of your founders? And, and how do you approach those types of situations if they do arise? I would say that I haven't necessarily, I've, 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 I've managed some conversations about questions about work that are on the darker side, of which Paul has several things um, in his dark works. Um, my job right now is largely looking at all those works that haven't been back in a while and trying to figure out like, knowing what I know now, having done the readings, the anti-racism work, you know, looking at the climate ahead, looking at these pre-existing works that were made in generations of multiculturalism and white supremacy and patriarchy. It's not necessarily never performing art again. It's figuring out how to show it responsibly and to talk about it responsibly. And I think it goes back to Janet's, you know, this idea of the pre-show conversations, but like giving audiences a lens or an entry point. Because um, there are dances that even in the short window of two years, the topic that may be a red flag can change considerably depending on the composer or the visual artist or the work. So it's been a lot of thinking for me as a leader, as a curator, um, when it comes to work that's pre-existing. But also wanting to make sure that we're curating responsibly and making sure that if we do wanna have a work that provokes thought and dialogue and questions and reveals facets of humanity that are difficult, that we don't not show that because that is a facet of humanity. Um, sometimes art is a mirror and it's meant to be a mirror. And sometimes it's a blanket that will hold you. Um, so thinking through all of that, it's been on my mind a lot over the past two years. Oh yeah, it's very present. And um, I think something that the modern dance community as a whole should be talking about, talking about together. I mean, more mm. has been done, I think in the ballet world, um, looking at the Nutcracker, for example, and mm. all the cultural appropriation in the Nutcracker and 
um, really um, taking that on more than than those of us in the modern dance world have. Um, when I look at other art forms, which is something I do a lot to get inspiration for how we move forward, um, they've been uh, talking about monuments, you know, around the country and and what those mon <clears throat> those monuments um, mean in today's context and. 20th century dance has a lot of monuments that we should be asking. Um, what context were they born out of? And does that still resonate for today's world? Or can we make it resonate better? Can we open conversations to it? And um, so, you know, Martha Graham was incredibly inspired by um, the rituals of Native Americans that she observed in the late 1920s and 30s. Um, and it was uh, an experience that she carried with her her entire life and, and quite often informed her work. Um, you look at the, the ritual um, walks that she used. I mean, no one would ever say, oh, well, she's stolen that from, she's appropriated that from Native Americans. But um, the, she called their dance a dance of necessity. The Native American rituals were mm. about the need for food or rain, or you know, they were they were about being one with nature. I'm sorry, I don't want to characterize them because I'm not an expert in it. But what Martha said, they were dances of necessity, and that was something that she was seeking in her own art form. Um, so as we look at her works. Um, I think our question is, well, what is the line between inspiration and cultural appropriation? Appropriation. Yeah. And, um, but there are other works that, you know, I'm, I'm rewriting many of our program notes. Appalachian Spring can be looked at as a very colonization type of ballet, um, where in fact, Aaron Copeland and Martha Graham at the time were very much involved in understanding um, um, all facets of America. They considered Harper's Ferry and abolitionists. And there's a depth to these works that should be in conversation, I believe. As we look to our next seasons, that's part of the one, one of the things that I'll be weaving into the first, first of our three year celebration of our 100th anniversary. That's wow. Mared, yeah. Mazel Tov, all the things. Thank that's you. amazing. <laughs> It's a lot of champagne you're going to be opening. Oh, God, I hope so. <laughs> I may have to start now. <laughs> hundred years. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I just want to say, like, I think these are conversations that, to Jana's point, like, must happen. I think, and I think they're long, I think it's, it's conversations over time. Um, one of the things that I, I've been trying to fix all this and solve all of it, you know, like, by Friday at, 10, you know, at 2 p.m., you know, and this is stuff, these, these topics are so important and so layered that I think taking the time to have these dialogues and to listen and to check yourself and your own privilege or your own opportunities, listening and recognizing that this, I think the responsibility of evolution and moving the field forward, um, there are things that we can do quickly and immediately. We can do program notes and we can kind of talk about things in new and exciting ways. But I think the long-term goal of looking at equity, looking at diversity, looking at representation, accessibility in the next 
50, 60, 100 years. Um, what does that look like? And then work backward from there. And that's that's the that's the goal, you know. Um, so recognizing kind of like the the rate of time that these different things can evolve and improve through. And I, I just think we'll benefit from from coming together to talk about these things. You know, I I can defend Martha Graham and Appalachian Spring, and I know her history and everything. But I would like to have a conversation about our 20th century masterworks with you, Michael, and with Edward yeah. Eduardo at Ballet Hispanico and Virginia Johnson and you know, Bill T. I mean, there, there, there are so many people who have so much knowledge um, about these works that, that come at them from different perspectives. And yeah. I know I would benefit greatly from um, how they would talk about these things. I would as well. I'm um, actually talking about dances as monuments, I thought was such an interesting idea. Mm. I think a lot of people think of the single choreographer modern dance company model itself as a, a kind of monument. And I know neither of your companies are, are single choreographer companies anymore, but do you think that that model today is still viable or still valuable? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think one of the things we didn't talk about in the previous topic was capitalism, because I think you can't talk about any of these cultural and social themes without talking about money, frankly. Totally. Um, and I bring that back to this conversation about the single choreographer model, because I know that much of our company's touring and exposure to the world came from government funding, almost exclusively in the early years. And I think a lot of the single choreographer companies, and I could be wrong, I mean, I'm happy to learn more, but I think the, 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 the amount of art funding that was coming from government support was very different in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s than it is now. Um, so I think philanthropy and capitalism supported a single choreographer model in a way that I think is different from what's happening now. Not that we don't still have single choreographer companies. We have Kyle Abraham, we have Pam Chanowitz, Mark. Mark, we have Andrea Miller, you know, it's still there. But I know the the philanthropic systems that totally influence sustain it. those companies are different. Absolutely. Than what I think Martha, than what Lamone, Taylor, Merce had, um, even Twyla. Um, so that I think is where the the difference is. Yeah, I agree. The philanthropic model has changed, and the generation has changed. I mean, when we talk about Merce and Paul and Martha, you know, I mean, these and Jose, these giants of the art form were really, were the foundation, were the revolutionaries, basically. I mean, one generation or the next generation. Um, and so many things have changed that allow, there are new systems that support creatives today in a, a much different way, but allow them to take advantage of being freelancers in a way and not have the burden of paying 15 dancers a, a living wage. Uh, you know, they can be much more flexible and fluid. That's supported by technology, social media. I mean, there are so many different ways to reach audiences now than there were back when, you know, our mentors were uh, creating their works and their company. It's just so many things have changed that 
I really think that the single choreographer company is, it's a bit cumbersome. It's a bit of a dinosaur. I mean, it's why we're both doing repertory companies at this point, rather than the work of only one choreographer. Um, Someone like Andrea Meller, she, yes, she has dancers she uses regularly, but her gigs are with the Metropolitan Museum of Art, or she's making a film in the Lincoln Center pool, or she's doing a commercial, or, you know, I mean, people do operas. It's just these creatives uh, have uh, a much wider range of opportunities now. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we launched a resident choreographer positions specifically because choreographers do freelance so much now that they can kind of build a brand based off of their choreography rather than their company and the opportunities are huge and I was I was I I was thinking about this idea of a single choreographer company and I was like having a position here where a choreographer can come home they can do all the things but they know that they have a creative place in which they can maybe take more risks because it's not a new team um, that they're working with, that the artists that they come back to are the ones who know them. Trust is different. It's more established. And the idea is that a choreographer can learn with that home base in a different way than they can going from project to project. And, and let's face it, you're giving them a financial base. Too. And I a mean, financial this base. conversation came around, yeah. you know, you say there are so many opportunities out there. I know there are a lot of young choreographers listening to this that are saying, where? I can't where make a they? living. I can't make a living. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how these young artists really can do it. Um, they do do it because it's their love and they figure out yeah. a way. But the financial part of this conversation is it's huge. It's huge. I, think that's why, I think that's why a lot of foundations right now are allocating funds and financial support specifically to artists in terms of like they're going to the dance makers um, rather than going to institutions to trying to offset what you're just talking about. Um, that these choreographers who may, you know, do have the financial support to keep creating independent of a general operating support for like a larger institution. So offsetting that balance as well is something that I think is influencing this conversation about a single choreographer company and philanthropy. So this is not a great segue, but I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna close with a question, just acknowledging how intertwined your founders' lives were, how, how intertwined Graham and Taylor's lives were. Mm-hmm. How do you think their resulting interconnected legacies are similar and different? And how have those similarities and differences shaped your two approaches to leadership? Two huge Those questions. are two huge questions. Yeah. I'm not sure I can see the contrast. I'm so over on Martha's Mountain. I'm, sure. you know, <laughs> Paul, I, don't, I mean, not if. I like to say, oh, Martha taught at Paul everything he knows, but, yeah. <laughs> but you know, of course that's not true. He he left her. It, she was in love with Paul. He was he was a swimmer before he came mm-hmm. to be a dancer, and she loved his wingspan. You know, she created roles for him, and but you have to take his history from from there, Michael. And when he broke yeah. away and started experimenting with those new, those works that you brought to the Joyce's here and um, partnering with these great contemporary artists. And- yeah. I mean, I think 
I think through Martha, Paul, I think she taught him the contraction and how to use his back and pelvis in a way that I don't quite think, I mean, maybe he got a little bit of that from Balanchine in a, albeit a different way. Um, but when I look at Graham, when I look at Paul, I see the use of the arms, the sculpture, the torso, the- um, Expression through form. The, through the pelvis, yeah. the expression through the pelvis. Um, and through, it's, I, I see that in everything we do. Um, and a lot of the dancers that he worked with in the 1960s um, had extensive Graham training or Cunningham training. Um, and I think that's important to note because when, when I bring back work, frankly, through every decade, every decade slightly different in terms of the dancer's knowledge of dance technique or dance style. Um, the dancers in the 1980s moved differently. Their training background was different. You go to the 60s and a little bit into the early 70s, you're seeing Paul wrestling with Graham, like loving it and wanting to do his own thing. And rather than doing a contraction this way, I'm going to spiral, like, like finding new ways to find, like to explore it. So that wrestling, I love in the early work. And I try to get our dancers to understand that and see that and make sure that they embody that in a way when they do a work from the 60s that they would not do in a work from the 90s. It should be different. Um, watch your original cast is something that we do a lot. Um, look at those dancers, look how they were moving, look how they were falling to the floor. Uh, Michael, wouldn't you say that what connects our work, Paul's and Martha's work, is that they were both interested in expression through form to expressing things as, as opposed to say Merce. Now, yeah. um, Merce really broke away and wanted the design, nothing but the design to speak to the audience. And I know his disciples, I've spoken with them, we've, we've done sort of common programs comparing the two, say, yeah, yeah but the emotion was, was there, but he didn't talk about it a lot. But mm. I mean, if we really want to be the short form, Merce was more about lines and designs and modernist design, whereas Paul and Martha really stayed with that idea of having humans on stage that were relating to yeah. each other and relating to the audience. And I think that's something that kept them connected. And of course, there are many other choreographers who are of that same ilk. Um, yeah. they, want, they want humans on stage, not just designs. And I think Paul also liked... You know, Martha called him Naughty Boy in 1957 because yeah. he covered the dancers' faces with the Robert Rauschenberg costume. And there's something endearing and also kind of like a mentor who's going to always kind of push you a little bit, you know. Um, and I see that. I see that that relationship there kinetically, too, and in the stories. But Paul didn't do a lot of Greek myths in his rep, you know, I think he kind of was like, okay, like, thank you, Martha. You know, he didn't do a lot of chance procedure. He tried it, he did it with Merce, did it. It was like, well, it's not quite for me. Um, worked with Balanchine, tried, you know, like, so like, I, I think it was all part of Paul forming his own way of creating and creating art. And I think for, for me to make it back to like leadership, I think I'm doing the same thing. Like I'm borrowing from Paul and I'm learning from Paul. I'm learning from our rehearsal directors, from our 
alumni. I'm learning from the culture I'm in. I'm learning from social media and digital content and philosophy on futures and futurism. And like, I'm pulling from all these different sources to figure out what I think is truly going to make impactful art for the future. Um, and I do think expression is essential in that. And we're lucky. We're lucky we have these incredible, um, you know, core collections. Yeah. And the timelessness of some of yeah. these works. We, we have these masterpieces. I was talking about Chronicle um, with someone earlier today. And I was like, I don't care what year it was made. Every time you see it, it's yeah. brand new. Yeah. It's still new to me. It's like, God, this is such a good yeah. work, you know? I mean, how lucky are we? We have these masterpieces. They're masterpieces. Yeah. All, we ha- all we really have to do is put them on stage. Because, <laughs> you know, and open the door. We have spectacular dancers. We have ex- spectacular art. And we're lucky enough to be commissioning work from some of today's top artists yes. and curating it in a way that resonates in today's world. And I mean, I just think I have the greatest job ever. Oh, that seems like a lovely place to end. Janet and Michael, thank you both so much for making the time for this conversation. I really appreciate it. And I, I got to go. I have to go embroider yeah. some pillows. So <laughs> thanks for that, too. Tune in next time. <laughs> Let us know when they're on Etsy so we can order a few. I'll give you my shop name, yeah. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Another big thank you to Janet and Michael. In the show notes, we have links to both the Martha Graham Dance Company and Paul Taylor Dance Company websites, as well as their social pages, so that you can find out what both troops have planned for their seasons this year. There's a lot of exciting things on the horizon. We also have links to the Kennedy Center's website and social accounts, so you can keep up with all of their great dance programming. And finally, there's a link to Dance Magazine's August cover story on the Taylor Company, which is not to be missed. Thanks to all of you for listening. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing.